word. We thank you for the message that you have for us this morning, and I pray that my words and the preparation that I've done would merely be a vehicle for what you want to communicate to each person. Lord, we trust that your Holy Spirit can communicate what you want to say uh, with me or in spite of me. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've heard a couple times this morning, we just got done celebrating Christmas. And Christmas, I think people associate very strongly with home, right? Are you going to be home for Christmas? A lot of people's adult children probably made it home for Christmas. There's even the song, I'll be home for Christmas, you can count on me. And it struck me as I was studying for this that all of the people who were involved in the stories that you're going to be hearing this morning really had to leave home a lot, that home wasn't something that they could count on, and God sent them to a variety of places in his world. And they had to do that in order to fulfill God's purposes in their generation. See, Nathan and Alex have been preaching a series called Christmas in Genesis. And normally, Christmas and Genesis don't go together in the same breath, but there are clues all over that book that God was going to send his Messiah and that he was going to rescue us from our rebellion and sinfulness. Because, you know, it's not as if God was surprised when mankind fell into sin. It's not as though the whole of human history was something where there was a disaster that he didn't have any idea about, and then he's trying to somehow contain the radioactivity of sin. Oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to... No, it's not like that at all. God knew from eternity past that he was going to send his son to be the savior of humankind. He declares this in Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, that he always knows the end of something before it even begins. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, remember the former things, those things of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. God first announces his plan of salvation in the Garden of Eden. Right? Adam and Eve have barely fallen into sin, and God announces that he's going to send a Savior when he said, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. He's talking to Satan there and explaining Satan's demise. Even more interesting, since this word of promise is given in a patriarchal society of the ancient world, it's pretty interesting that he said, the seed of the woman will be the Savior, right? That hint is another promise that Jesus would be born of a virgin. A few chapters later, 
God calls a man named Abraham and gives him a multi-part promise. Land, fame, and kids. The promise also included the idea that all nations on earth would be blessed through Abraham. And this promise is another hint that God's going to send the Messiah King through Abraham's family. And sticking with Abraham for a minute, we saw last week with Pastor Alex that many times God asked Abraham to walk by faith, and he tested that faith, such as when he commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And so they go up to the mountain, but even there, God provided a ram for Abraham to sacrifice in place of his son Isaac. We also saw God revealing himself and his gospel to Abraham's grandson Jacob, who lay down to sleep and dreamed of a stairway between heaven and earth. Above the stairway stood God, who reiterated his earlier promise to Abraham. He now made it to Jacob when he said, Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring, Genesis twenty-eight fourteen. And so Jacob's life continues the story of salvation. So this morning is the last installment in the Christmas in Genesis series. It's the story of Jacob's son, Joseph. We're going to see how Joseph's whole life is a picture of who Jesus would be and what he came to accomplish. Now, normally, I would read you the text at this point, but as the text covers the last 12 or 13 chapters of Genesis, I'm sure you'll be thankful that I'm not going to do that. We'll, we'll content ourselves with selected passages from the story. If you spent any time in Sunday school growing up, you probably know the basic story of Joseph. His father, Jacob, had 12 sons by two wives and two concubines, and Joseph was the older son of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. Genesis 37 records that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, not only as Rachel's son, but also because he had been born in Jacob's old age. Well, this privileged position made things kind of rocky for Joseph in the eyes of his older brothers. They disliked him because he'd brought his father a bad report about their shepherding, uh, they disliked him because Jacob had given him a richly ornamented robe. Do you remember the, the coat of many colors in the Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat? Um, great number there. Um, and um, they disliked him because he began to have supernatural dreams. Now, in the first dream, the whole family is binding sheaves of grain in the field when suddenly Joseph's sheaf stands straight up and all the other sheaves bow down before him. And in the second dream, there's the sun and the moon and 11 stars bow down to him. By this point, the brothers are filled with rage and jealousy towards Joseph. It's a classic sins of the older brother and sins of the younger brother coming together to make a terrible family dynamic that's where we are. 
right? Well, there are already many parallels here to the coming of Jesus. For example, Jesus is the Father's beloved Son. God the Father says this openly at Jesus' baptism. This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That's Matthew 3.17. Furthermore, in Colossians 1.18, Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation, meaning that he has the authority over everything that the Father has made. Okay? Now you would think that a divinely appointed ruler would be well received here on earth, uh, but Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was received just about as nicely as Joseph wasn't. John 1, 11, John writes, John writes, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. By any measure, Jesus should have been loved and welcomed in Israel, but he was not. So, the brothers were angry. The next time Jacob sent Joseph to them to see how they were faring, they plotted his murder. Their plan was to kill him, throw his body in a cistern, and then tell Jacob that some wild animal had consumed Joseph. But Reuben, the oldest brother, who's perhaps a little more level-headed than the others, as oldest sometimes are, um, and he suggests that they just throw him into a cistern without killing him. But at just the right moment, a caravan of Ishmaelite traders appears on the horizon headed towards Egypt. Judah, the fourth oldest brother, sees them coming and convinces the other brothers that the best thing to do is to sell Joseph into slavery with the Ishmaelites. That way, they don't end up killing him and they get money out of the deal. It's, it's like a twofer, right? So they got 20 shekels of silver for him and then they needed something to tell their father so they grabbed a goat, slaughtered a goat, dipped the coat of many colors in the goat's blood, and then brought the robe home to Jacob and said, is this your son's robe? And Jacob looks at the thing and he goes, that is my son's robe. Some wild beast surely must have killed Joseph. And he began to grieve and grieve. And the text tells us that his sons and his daughter and basically everybody came to comfort him but it really didn't do much good. He wasn't to be comforted. Well, meanwhile, the Ishmaelite traders sell Joseph to an Egyptian named Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Because the Lord was with Joseph, he began to prosper in Potiphar's household. And soon Joseph was in charge of the whole household, and the text tells us that Potiphar didn't concern himself with anything in the household beyond the food that he himself actually ate. That's how much he trusted Joseph. It would have been a great time in Joseph's life, except for Mrs. Potiphar. See, she tried to seduce Joseph on more than one occasion, and he always refused her. Listen to his reply. This is Genesis 39, 8 and 9. But he refused. With me in charge, 
He told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So Mrs. Potiphar created quite a mess for Joseph there. And in these situations, sometimes the innocent party gets cleared, and sometimes the innocent party goes to jail. In Joseph's case, Mrs. Potiphar turned the tables on him and declared to Potiphar that Joseph had been trying to seduce her and not the other way around. And Potiphar believed his wife, became angry with Joseph, and dumped him in a prison that Pharaoh also used for his prisoners. This segment of Joseph's story also runs parallel to the life of Jesus. Over and over and over again, Jesus was accused of wrongdoing that he did not commit. The sinless Son of God was questioned and second-guessed and cross-examined over and over. Jesus laments this in Matthew eleven sixteen through 19, where he said, "'To what can I compare this generation?' They are like little children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Furthermore, just as Joseph suffered punishment for crimes he didn't commit, Jesus suffered a completely undeserved death when the Jews convinced Pontius Pilate to crucify him. Isaiah writes in advance of this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. So, back to Genesis. Joseph's story is just picking up steam. We left Joseph in Egypt's royal prison, where God continued to be with Joseph in everything he does. Soon he's in charge of every aspect of the prison, including the chief baker and the chief cupbearer who had offended the king of Egypt. In the course of time, both of these men have dreams, and Joseph interpreted the dreams for them, and the interpretations came true. The chief baker was hanged, and the chief cupbearer was returned to his post. Now, you might think that everything's going to be grand for Joseph from this point on, but God's timing is not always our timing. And Joseph did another two years in the federal prison in Egypt because the cupbearer forgot about him until Pharaoh himself started having dreams. Pharaoh 
was pretty troubled by his dreams, which centered on seven skinny cows swallowing seven well-fed cows and seven thin, dry, parched heads of grain swallowing seven rich, full heads of grain but not getting any fuller. Joseph explained to Pharaoh that God was going to give them seven years of plentiful harvests, followed by seven years of widespread famine. Then he offered Pharaoh an idea for a food collection program to get them through the seven years of famine, and Pharaoh basically said, I can't think of anybody better than you, Joseph, to run this program for me. And instantly, Joseph became the second in command of all Egypt with a mandate for saving the people from starvation. When the famine came, it was a widespread famine, and soon ten of Joseph's brothers were in Egypt trying to buy grain. Now, Joseph saw them and recognized them, but of course it's been over 20 years since Joseph has left home, and Joseph now looks like an Egyptian... And let's face it, they just didn't expect to see Joseph there. So Joseph asks them probing questions and runs them through a variety of rigorous tests to see if they've changed at all from the days when they sold him into slavery. And they have. For one of the tests, Joseph insisted that they bring their youngest brother, his full brother Benjamin, back with them on their return trip. And Jacob declares that it's out of the question. But listen to Judah's response. If you're following with me, we're in Genesis 43. Genesis 43, 6 through 9. Israel, that's Jacob, asked, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How were we to know? He would say, bring your brother down here. Then Judah, that's key. Did you hear that? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. Judas become a different man. He takes responsibility, guaranteeing that Benjamin will return safely and seeking to make up for the wrongs that he had instigated before. And so Jacob agrees, and they take Benjamin back to Egypt with them. When they arrive, Joseph continues to give them royal, but also puzzling treatment. He asks them more questions about their aged father. When they're at dinner with Joseph, they realize that they've been seated in order of age. And Benjamin's portions are five times as much as anybody else's portions. Can you imagine what's going through the brothers' heads by this time? Then Joseph designs another ruse, another trick, 
really another test in which he frames Benjamin for stealing his own silver chalice. When Joseph declares that he will keep his youngest brother as slave, as payment for the theft, Judas steps up. Listen to what Judas says. This is Genesis 44. Genesis 44, I'm starting at 25. He says, talking to Joseph, whom he still doesn't recognize, then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring the boy back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Judah is a changed man and the brothers are changed as well. At this point, Joseph can't bear the deception any longer and reveals himself to them. And they were scared to death. Wouldn't you be? The brother that you sold into slavery is now second in command of the only nation that has food in the entire region. But listen to Joseph's invitation to them. This is Genesis 45. Genesis 45, start at verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And that brings us back to Jesus. You see, what Joseph was forced to do to be exiled from his home and become a slave in a strange land, Jesus did willingly. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus, who is God in his very being, in his essence, emptied himself and took on the form of a servant when he became human. 
The Greek word there is doulos, and it's best translated slave. So what we're saying here is that the transition from the glories of heaven to the dusty paths of this earth is more than parallel from the transition freedom to being enslaved. And Jesus did this in voluntary submission to the Father's will. And by doing so, he enacted the greatest rescue plan of all time. You are probably very familiar with God's great rescue plan, but if you're not, I want to give you the basics. After our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, they became sinners, and all of their descendants were infected with the same problem, sin. And sin quickly leads to separation and ultimately to death. People try all kinds of solutions to deal with the guilt that comes from sin, but ignoring it doesn't fix it. Punishment doesn't fix it. Trying to keep God's law in your own strength doesn't fix it. The only thing that fixes it is admitting that you can't fix it. But Jesus can. As I said a minute ago, Jesus emptied himself of his full glory as God and became human so that he could live this life but without sin and represent you and me before God. When Jesus died on the cross, he willingly took all of that sin upon himself. The only thing he asks you to do is come to him in faith, believing that his death paid for every sin, every evil, selfish act that you've done. In the instant you do that, God's great exchange goes into effect. God removes all your sins because of Jesus' death in your place. And he credits all of Jesus' righteousness to your account so that you have perfect standing before him. And he gives you his Holy Spirit to dwell within you. The Bible says the Holy Spirit's presence in you is like a deposit that guarantees the good things that are coming for every believer in Jesus Christ. A glorious future with God. If you've never received God's gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, this morning would be a great time to join God's family. And if you're puzzled about how to do that, you could come and talk with me. You could talk with Pastor Nathan. You could talk with one of our elders. You could talk with a lot of people in this body, and they would be able to lead you to personal faith in Christ. The rest of Joseph's story will warm your heart, I think. When the brothers convinced their father that Joseph was still alive, Jacob moved the whole clan, more than 70 of them in all, to Egypt, and he and Joseph were reunited. Pharaoh gave Joseph's family the land of Goshen, good land where they could pasture their sheep without annoying the Egyptians. Joseph enjoyed his father's company for 17 more years in Egypt where he continued to prosper and rule. Just before Jacob was about to die, the whole family gathered together to hear Jacob's blessing for each one of his sons. His blessing for Joseph was thorough and rich and pleasant, 
But the most important blessing went to Judah, the brother who thought that it was a good idea to sell Joseph into slavery at the beginning of our story. In Genesis 49.10, Jacob blessed him and said, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. See, the messianic seed would pass down Judah's line, and ultimately Jesus would come from his family. And so Joseph, by God's sovereign hand, saved everyone. He saved the people of Egypt from starvation. He saved the people from the surrounding nations from the same fate. But probably most important to Joseph, he rescued his own family from the famine that surely would have destroyed them without Egypt's provisions. As a ruler who rescues his people, Joseph became a picture of the divine ruler who rescues you and me from sin, death, and the power of Satan. Now, many of you this morning are followers of this divine ruler, this Jesus who saves his people from their sins. You've tasted his goodness, and you know that you want to continue to walk with him in 2020, to honor him, to live in him. In the same way that Joseph was a good master for his people, Jesus will continue to be a good master for you. His goodness is on display throughout all of the scriptures, even all the way back in Genesis. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you've given us your word, and that your word is full of examples of people whose lives were affected by our glorious King of Kings. And we thank you for the life of Joseph. We thank you for his faith in you. And we thank you most importantly that he points us to the one who lived perfectly by faith in you, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we ask that as we bring this worship service to a close uh, through music, that we would worship you. And we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would call forth worship from us and that we would be formed by the things that we do spiritually. And we ask it in your precious name. Amen.